Hello and welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Clay. And I'm Sarah. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. Sarah. Yas. In 2006, our lives were changed forever. Okay. And our hearts broken. Oh. The International Astronomical Union demoted Pluto to a dwarf <gasps> oh, planet. God. I don't want to talk about that. Do we have to talk about that? We do have to talk about it because mm. it happened. It's in history now. Whatever. And our podcast is called Fantastic History. Well, this isn't fantastic. It's BS and I hate it. No, it was pretty humiliating for Pluto to lose its, de- its designation as the ninth planet. But what if I told you that Pluto was not the first ninth planet? On March 13th, 1781, William Herschel discovered Uranus. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't. Now, Sarah, I don't know if you know this, but Uranus is a big gas giant. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> Stop it. It has been observed by people for centuries, but no one realized that it that Uranus was a planet. <laughs> doing this on purpose i am not yes you are i'm just reading what it says right here (laughs) okay we all hear the emphasis they thought that uranus was a star but (laughs) herschel was able to give uranus the attention and love that it deserved i'm so angry all right let's uh let's let's bring it in Uh uh-huh let's bring it in okay okay we'll leave that for we'll, we'll leave that there Meanwhile, a man by the name of Pierre Laplace had spent between 1780 and the early 1800s creating the most comprehensive account of the interactions of the sun, planets, and their moons using Newtonian physics. He published Celestial Mechanics, which was the best mathematical model for the solar system to date. Okay. He explained how the planets moved and where they would be in the distant future. Ooh, smart guy. Enter... Herba Jean-Joseph Laverrier, a competent mathematician who got his start in big tobacco only to later take an apprenticeship in astronomy at the age of 25. So he has diverse interests is what I'm hearing. Well, he started off as a chemist and then Ah. decided to put his expertise into astronomy. Okay. Laplace died in 1827 and he was sure that his greatest work would stand the test of time, but there were some problems with it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a perfect mathematical model. And Laverrier wanted to try and tackle those problems. Now, this was not an easy undertaking, as I'm sure that Laplace understood. According to Newtonian physics, everything that has mass applies a gravitational force on everything else. Okay. So when you're trying to uh, map the entire solar system, well, every planet is pulling on every other planet. The sun is pulling on them, and the planets are pulling on the sun. The moons and comets are pulling on each other. So you have to account for a lot of different things yeah. when you're putting this mathematical model together. Hmm. It's a very complicated process, but it is possible. So um, Laverrier started with the inner planets, recalculating their movements and using more accurate technology, and was able to get a more precise measure of their behavior. Specifically, he was able to narrow Mercury's arrival across the sun down to the second. Whoa. But as incredible as this was, there was a problem. Mercury was 16 seconds late. Retrograde. 
Not a big deal in the short term, but if his calculations were off by 16 seconds now, mm. that means they would be off by much greater margins uh, over thousands or millions of years. Right. The goal, after all, was to create a mathematically perfect model to predict the cosmos with as much accuracy as they could. So Leverrier was actually very close to publishing a paper on his findings, but chose to put it off until he could resolve the issue with Mercury. But there was another planetary problem that he uh, he was soon pulled into, Uranus. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> this relatively new planet uh, was determined to have been misidentified earlier by earlier stargazers as a star, not a planet. So they were able to take their data and tried to fit the planet into some calculations with all the other solar bodies. But Uranus didn't fit. It kept wandering off course, and the calculations kept being wrong. So either reality was wrong, <laughs> or, Newton, or Newton was wrong. Oh, dear. And Newton couldn't be wrong. Yeah, I would buy that reality is wrong. So Laverrier had a shot at answering this. Perhaps Uranus had a very large moon that was creating a wobble, uh, perhaps a an asteroid had hit the planet and adjusted its orbit. Um, nobody was ready to suggest that Newtonian gravity had errors, so there was only one remaining possibility that was also hypothesized, that there was an eighth planet beyond Uranus. The amount of mathematics necessary to not only determine that this was possible, but how big the planet was, how far its orbit was, and where it was in the night sky is incomprehensible to me mm -hmm. yeah same it took several years for leverrier to compile this data but when he was done he proclaimed just that and on september 23rd 1846 um, a, a fellow astronomer was instructed by leverrier to observe a small portion of the sky near capricorn and which he did and there it was neptune Ooh, yay! right where leverrier said it was supposed to be hey girl and I believe this was the very first time that anyone said, according to mathematics, mm -hmm. this 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 thing should be in the sky right here. And there it was. That's crazy. And he was hailed as a hero. Dude, math is the coolest. <laughs> he was hailed as a superhero with the power to see the universe through the maths in his head. And with his superstar position, Leverrier set out to catalog the cosmos just as Laplace had done. But Leverrier was going to do it right. <laughs> Suck at Laplace. <laughs> he later became the head of the Paris Observatory. He was never seen as a very pleasant person to work with, though. I can see that, sure. And especially in a position of leadership, uh, those qualities only exasperated. Mm. Uh, but while his qualities and power were not impressive, his mathematical talents were still sharp, and he set out to complete his work on the solar system. But during his extensive research, one problem arose from years ago. Mercury. Now, in a perfect system, Mercury would have the same perihelion every year. Now, a perihelion uh, is the point at which Mercury is the closest to the sun. Okay. And it's a fixed point. Sure. But the solar system is not a perfect system. Every planet has some impact on the orbit of Mercury. Now, when Leverrier calculated all of the planet's gravitational impact on Mercury... And his own observations, he found the problem. Mercury was drifting off course by approximately 43 arc seconds per century. Ooh. That's an incredibly small deviation in the vastness of space, but it was still a deviation. And they needed to fix it. Mercury's orbit around the sun was more of an oval shape. 
or sorry, it is. Okay. Uh, They didn't change it. Yeah. No. Okay. Uh, So with its perihelion moving after every rotation, um, over time, the orbit creates kind of a flower-like pattern as it goes across the sun. That meant there was something else at play that nobody quite yet understood. Now, to Le Verrier, the answer must be like it was with the mystery of Uranus. There must be a unknown planet or a group of smaller planets that's accounting for this anomaly. This phantom planet must be in orbit between Mercury and the Sun. But if there is something there, why was it never seen? Right. The Sun has been studied a lot. Yeah. But astronomers thought that if there was something there, it, w- it might be too small to be seen against the glare of the Sun. Oh. And maybe misidentified as a sunspot. Mm-hmm. Analyzing these sunspots would be possible, but frustratingly slow and very arduous. There would be another way to quickly see these asteroids or planet during a solar eclipse. That way, they would block the glare of the sun and allow astronomers to study the areas around the sun that Leverrier said they would find it. Oh, wow. But as luck would have it, waiting for the next eclipse would not be necessary. Edmund Modeste uh, Lescarbeau was a uh, country doctor living in a small town in France. Lescarbeau's hobby was stargazing, and he had built himself an impressive amateur observatory. He was not a mathematician like Le Verrier, but he was curious and spent a lot of time and effort on his hobby. Now, on su- on Saturday, March 26, 1859, Le- um, Lescarbeau was watching the sun between his appointments, and he saw something. Sorry, just watching the sun through a telescope? Mm-hmm. How is he not burning out his eyeballs? Filters. Really? Yeah. Okay, I guess I probably should know, but I just didn't think people could look at the sun. I don't know. Oh, yeah, even back then. Okay, that's crazy. So he was, even a country doctor. Right, okay. Would have the ability to do this. So he was watching the sun because he was studying. He was studying the sun and studying, um, looking for asteroids and whatnot. And he saw something unexpected, a small dot appearing just inside the edge of the star. He measured that it was about one quarter the size of Mercury and estimated that when it had first crossed into the sun. And he was making notes on his on this object. A patient arrived. <laughs> <laughs> and Les Carbo was frustratingly forced to leave his telescope to deal with his patient. Right. Must have been very frustrating. Uh, but when he returned, the object was still there moving across the sky. He took notes of the object uh, when it arrived across the sun, like when it came into view when it disappeared from view. But he didn't report his findings immediately. It wasn't until nine months later that Les Carbeaux saw Laverie's article in the journal Cosmos detailing his theory on this phantom planet that he realized, oh, maybe I saw that phantom planet. So he sent a letter to the Paris Observatory with his findings. And Laverie showed up on um, Les Carbeaux's doorstep unannounced very quickly and uh, submitted the good doctor to an intense review of his instruments, intelligence, and judgment. Ooh. Because if this guy said he saw something, uh, Laverie wanted to, you know, give him a good talking to to figure out if he was on the up and up. Uh-huh. After the interrogation, Laverie was convinced that Les Carbeau was not only honest, but his observations sound. He had discovered the first inter-Mercurian planet. Now, Laverrier set out to determine the planet's orbit, and he did so in just one week. Whoa. He determined the planet must orbit the sun so very, very close 
It, it would orbit the sun once every 20 days. Oh, my God. Making it so close to the sun that it would be nearly impossible to see. But still possible if you're looking very carefully. Mm-hmm. Just with Neptune, others searched old records and believed that they had found misidentifications in the past. They did... Um, they did find many possible sightings leading to more excitement in the scientific community and across the world as a whole. Laverie had done it again. <laughs> he had found the second planet mm-hmm. of, of our solar system. But what would they call it? Hmm. Now, Laverie had suggested the name, uh, uh, an interesting name for Neptune. He, he said, maybe you could call it Laverie. Dude, you're not a Roman <laughs> god. We're not naming a planet after you. Like, yes. Look at the pattern, sir. Yes. They're all Roman god. Get out of here. Yes. Disrespect. Exactly. <laughs> now, in keeping tradition, as you said, mm-hmm. with the naming of cosmic bodies after ancient gods, a fitting choice became clear: the Roman god of fire himself, Vulcan. Oh, the ninth planet of our solar system. I feel like, you know, I think I've heard of Vulcans. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> Sounds vaguely familiar. Sounds a little familiar. Uh huh. Now that the planet had been found, the next step was pretty obvious observe it, collect more data, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But as everyone listening and you, Sarah, may be able <laughs> to guess, this is where the problems began. <laughs> Using Les Carbo's observations, as well as other uh, sightings across time, they had been uh, retroactively identified as Vulcan. Astronomers determined when the next transit of Vulcan would take place. Now, what they mean by transit is when Vulcan would appear between the sun and our vantage point on Earth. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't after every orbit. Uh, It was determined that this would take place sometime between March 29th and April 7th in 1860. So all eyes on Earth were on the search for Vulcan. But Vulcan never showed up. Oh. Still, the mathematics demanded that Vulcan had to be there. So the search continued. It was not until the following year that a pair of astronomers announced they had witnessed Vulcan moving across the sun. And by the mid-1860s, Vulcan was appearing in literature and astronomical maps. And there still exists maps that show, you know, the planets. This was before Pluto was discovered, mm-hmm. showing all nine planets. That's wild. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can link one of those on the Instagram. You know, I'll see what I can do. Yeah, <laughs> I'll talk to my guy. Over the next few years, sightings of Vulcan continued to trickle in, but none, they were never able to get any exact measurements. To the casual astronomer, Vulcan would appear, but during a professional hunt, the planet was frustratingly elusive. <laughs> it's just like ghost hunting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's it's bizarre. Mm-hmm. By 1971, astronomers had spent the year and the previous two watching the sun very carefully. Right. There was a coordinated effort to have an eye on the sun at all times to find this planet once and for all. But still, it never showed. Laverie suspected that perhaps his previous theory of a group of smaller protoplanets could explain Mercury's wobble. But something should still be seen. Mm-hmm. The fact that there was nothing, it must have meant that they just weren't looking at the, at the right place at the right time. By 1876, professional astronomer Heinrich Weber observed the elusive dark spot transit, transit across the sun as many amateurs had also seen. And this pushed Vulcan mania back into the mainstream once again. 
The New York Times even made the concrete assertion, the man who untied Neptune with his nose, so to speak, cannot be accused of confounding accidental flies with actual planets. When he firmly asserts that he has not only discovered Vulcan, but has calculated its elements, there is an end of all discussions. Oh, hang on your face. All they needed, they, 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 they just needed more time mm-hmm. to find Vulcan. But time is a fickle thing, Sarah. <laughs> is it? It is. Leverrier would not live long enough to find his planet. In 1876, at the age of 66, he died of liver cancer. Dang. With Vulcan's most prominent believer gone, the phantom planet was in peril. Disbelievers were increasing. Something needed to happen to prove that Vulcan really existed. Well, that opportunity was right around the corner. Two years later, astronomers had their last opportunity to find Vulcan. There was a total eclipse that would pass through Siberia, Canada, and the middle of the United States. And as we just, as we talked about earlier, a total eclipse would block out the glare of the sun and allow mm-hmm. them to see with much more clarity what was out there. Mm-hmm. On July 29, 1878, a group of pro- professional astronomers had gathered in the new state of Wyoming, mm-hmm. praying for clear skies and that their portable equipment would be sufficient to gather the data that they needed. The astronomers had their telescopes, star maps, and other equipment ready to go. And at the time of totality, the sky was forgivingly clear, and the group set to work for their three minutes. Oh, yeah. I remember that from when we saw, what was it, in 2017? Yeah, so it... we, we we were able to see the uh, total eclipse from from our backyard. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, it's bizarre. It got so dark. It got dark, but leading up to it, it, it was strange, too. It, it's like the, the color kind of seeped out of the world a little bit. And all those little, the moon, like the crescent moon shadows that were all over the yard. Yeah. It was just bizarre. But it, yeah, three minutes, like that sounds about right. It did not last long. No, for, for us, it lasted only probably 10 seconds. Oh, yeah. Because we were right on the edge. Mm-hmm. But they had a great spot. But yeah, only three minutes to do this work was not a lot of time. Mm. So uh, one of the astronomers who was with this group who was specifically looking for Vulcan, was James Watson. And he says he identified a ruddy star, as he called it, that was not on his star map. Not a comet, but a new object. He quickly noted its location and continued to sweep uh, the sky as the others did. His colleague, Simon Newcomb, had also, also had a specific uh, equipment intended to search for Vulcan, but he did not see Watson's ruddy star. Unsurprisingly, having only three minutes to search the entire perimeter of the sun while not mistaking what you were looking at was a known star, mm-hmm. it's a huge task. Nevertheless, Watson's discovery, it seemed to prove that Vulcan was there, but there was a problem. No one else had seen it. Oh. And everyone who could get a train ticket or was living in the area was watching that eclipse. Right. It's a big deal. Oh, yeah. And that was the nail in the coffin. It was determined that after two decades of searching, there was not enough credible sightings to verify that Vulcan was there. The elusive planet never existed at all. And after a while, the world sort of forgot about the little non-planet. Nowadays, when you search Vulcan, you'll find the Star Trek planet and the Roman god, Mm -hmm. but not a lot of interest in the big oops of 1800s astronomy, the first ninth planet. I mean, and it's 100% sure. I guess people still, like, in much more modern times have 
looked. Yep. And it's just not there. No. So we don't know what it was. What was observed was likely a misidentification or a sunspot. Whatever these people who saw it. Wow. It just, it it wasn't it. What a bummer. Yeah. Well, thank you for, wait a minute. Sarah, I'm sorry, but. You son of a. This can't be the end of the story. Come on, man. (laughs) That's messed up. This can't. Now, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold the phone. What about Mercury? The whole reason Vulcan was thought to exist was because Mercury's inconsistent movements. Right. Those inconsistencies has to be caused by something, right? So what was wrong? Were their instruments off? Were their calculations actually within a margin of error that they were not aware of? I mean, 16 seconds, not that big a deal. Well, what was wrong? What, 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 was, what was going on? Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah, <laughs> to quote Beverly Crusher. Oh, my God. <laughs> from Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> no. In, in, a, in, a, in a very great episode, mm-hmm. she, she states this. If there's nothing wrong with me, maybe there's something wrong with the universe. Girl, I feel that. <laughs> oh. And in this case, that is correct. There was something wrong with the universe. Mm, at least one thing. See, the problem was that according to the proven laws of Newtonian physics, everything in the solar system made sense except for Mercury. Mercury was the thorn in the side. <laughs> it didn't obey the laws of physics. Why? Laverrier and astronomers had all proposed feasible options, explanations, except one. The one option they dare not propose or even utter. Aliens. What if Newton was wrong? (gasps) The foundations of physics itself. What if it wasn't right? That's messed up. You can't say that. It seemed impossible. Inconceivable because Laveria had used these mathematics to find Neptune. Right. Specifically, find mm-hmm. it right there. There it is. Yep. So was the universe as we knew it, was it wrong? Well, yes. Oh, okay. It was. And one man proved it not long after in 1915. Yes. That's right, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard of him. You know him straight from Switzerland. Let's give it up to the one, the only, Albert Einstein. Get the fuck out of he's, here. What? Yes, he's not here in the studio. But oh, man. Well, I'm <laughs> frankly glad I'm not dressed for company. So. No, we're, we're, we're not ready at all for a guest. <laughs> Einstein's general theory of relativity was published in 1915, and it redefined physics, specifically Silly. gravity, which he was better able to explain now it's difficult to understand and explain especially for me relativity Mm -hmm. Uh, so i'm just going to make it simple simple and quick relatively simple (laughs) yes he explained that gravity is not a field of attraction like newton believed but instead it's a warping of space and time around an object with mass so when viewing the universe like geometry The warping of space-time is like a bowling ball sitting on a stretched-out sheet of fabric. Oh, I see. The ball weighs down the sheet, distorting the space around it. If you were to drop like a a golf ball on the sheet, it would curve into the dip. Mm -hmm. In a very simplistic way, this is how Einstein redefined how gravity worked. For us on Earth, Newtonian physics and relativity, they're, they're indistinguishable. 
the effects are the same. It doesn't make any difference here. But on the cosmic scale, the differences are more noticeable. Mm. Now, Einstein had laid out some ways that his theory could be tested against Newton's for people to determine <laughs> what was correct. Oh, my God. And the first test he proposes, the precession of the perihelion of Mercury. Mm. When applying Newtonian physics, we are left with a perihelion that inexplicably advances 43 arc seconds per century, as we previously mm. discussed. But when applying the numbers to relativity, that number drops to zero. Whoa. After 200 years, Newton's theory of gravity had been usurped. And finally, Vulcan's existence proven unnecessary. Man. Okay, so here's what I want to see happen. I want you to get Lin-Manuel Miranda on the phone. <laughs> and I want to see a rap battle between Newton and Einstein. That'd be great. Explaining this, right? Because I feel like I understand post-colonial history much better now as a result of <laughs> Hamilton. And science is one thing that like, I am not good at. Like, you always hear, oh, you're either good at um, English or you're good at math. False. Great at both. Can't do science. Cannot understand science to literally save my life. Can't do it. <laughs> right. I need, I need, so Lynn, because I know you're a big fan of the show. Um, if I could get that rap battle, I would really appreciate it. I think that'd be great. Yeah, it would be amazing. So... Pluto was later discovered in 1930 and held the title of the ninth planet, the real ninth planet, the ninth planet that existed until 2006, leaving us again with just eight planets. But Vulcan's legacy, it still haunts us. In 2013, NASA conducted a poll to decide the name of two of Pluto's moons. The top three names were chosen on this online poll. Cerberus, Mm -hmm. Styx, Okay. And at number one, Vulcan. Interesting. Now, William Shatner did have a hand to play in that. Oh, <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> he uh, he encouraged Twitter to name the planet after this, uh, the uh, moon after the Star Trek planet. Mm-hmm. Um, but Vulcan was rejected. Good, because that doesn't make sense with Styx and Cerberus and Pluto. Yeah. Like, hello. Well, that, that, that's a big reason. Uh-huh. That's a big reason, but... It was not the only reason that they gave as to why they were going to say no. It was determined it was too soon since it was last used <laughs> for a planet. Okay. So Styx and Cerberus were chosen instead. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Now, the last thing I want to say on the topic of Vulcan is that while it turned out to be a hypothetical planet that was theorized by mathematics alone, um, it's happening again. <sighs> Not within Mercury's orbit, but far, far outside of Neptune's. Oh. Planet Nine was first (laughs) suggested in 2014 to explain the unusual orbits of a group of extreme trans-Neptunian objects. Okay. Planet Nine may have a very elongated and long orbit. While it takes approximately 250 years for Pluto to fully orbit the Sun... Planet Nine may take up to 20,000 years. Ooh. So if it is currently it's at way the, out there. If it's, yeah, if it's currently at the furthest away from Earth it could be, that would explain why we can't see it. Oh, man. 
it is really, really far away. But of course, this leads to the question, is it is Planet Nine a Neptune or is it a Vulcan? Ooh. Could this planet not exist at all, but instead lead us to redefining physics once again? No, come on, that's enough. I can't, no. Mm-mm. Not again? No, I'm done. We're done with that now. We've done that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all I have on the fascinating history of the first <laughs> ninth planet. That's wild. That is, I just, I just don't get it. <laughs> like, I don't get it, but it's so interesting. Yeah. So crazy to think about. I mean, especially because multiple people, it wasn't just the one country doctor who saw it and there was the math to back it up and then other people kept seeing it and what the hell? Yeah. Uh, it's just one of those things, you know. Cool. It's a it, it's an incredible story of math <laughs> and and science that had a question that led to redefining everything. Well done. Thanks. I'm not going to be able to sleep probably trying to understand it, but well done. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and thank you out there in Radio Land for listening to us. I hope you found that story interesting and if you did, Please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening. Check us out on Instagram and uh, Twitter for uh, more content. We are Fantastic H Pod on both, or you can shoot us an email at fantastichistorypod at gmail.com. Until next week, later. Live long and prosper. Bye.